Welcome to DMs of Vancouver. The show where we talk to our awesome friends and amazing guests about how to help you become a better GM for your tabletop games or review games that we've played recently from a GM and a player perspective. I'm Jesse Boros and my pronouns are he, him. I'm Sean Hagen and my pronouns are also he, him. We're your co-hosts for this podcast and we've got another fantastic episode for you. This podcast is recorded and produced on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. In recognition of that, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. Are you worried about putting debit cards, circular saws, air conditioning, and street food vendors into your fantasy game? Worry no more! Today we're talking about historical anachronisms. Today we are joined by Izzy Bromberger, who you... May I remember from the very the fourth episode of our show? It's been 94 episodes since we've had them on. Izzy's pronouns are they, them. We hope you enjoy the show. Roll for initiative. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the grounded pixie dice set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Welcome back to the show! Welcome back! (laughs) It's been a while! I know, right? Yes. Too long, one might even say. I was uh, around for episode four, I think. Yes. <laughs> around then, somewhere. Yep. Yeah, so it has been a while. Um, so, right, so we're talking about fantasy stuff and and it's like historical anachronisms, things that people think belong in a specific time period that are either from before that time period or from after that time period. Kind of like how, you know, dinosaur geeks get all tied into knots about how Jurassic Park is inaccurate. Uh, we're going to do that for D&D. Absolutely. Uh... <laughs> but in a way that is fun and productive and not just complaining. <laughs> <laughs> this will be a wonderful episode for those of you who have had the gunpowder debate at some point in your DMing career. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, I mean that that that's I think that seems like as good a place to start as any. Yeah. Must we? So no. <laughs> Well, it's for for D&D specifically, it's one of those things that I find interesting because they do have in I think it's in the GM's handbook. Um there's a small section on like if you want guns or laser pistols, like here's one very sparse page on how you could do that. Um, but uh, for gunpowder itself, uh, I mean, I don't think I have a problem with it. But I know the uh, the solve for it back in the day was basically to go, oh, you want to go gunpowder? Okay, well, we'll go make it as real as possible. You have to reload it between shots. It has to remain dry. It's a lead ball, no rifling. So it's... <laughs> Yeah, it's a point blank weapon no matter how long you make the barrel. Exactly. <laughs> um, what is it? The the what was it? The blunderbuss, the gun that had like it looked like a trumpet because it was just <laughs> there was no point in like trying to make it uh more accurate because they just didn't know about rifling. But uh, Yeah, they just wanted the bullet I to think, 
go in a direction. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, like is is black powder is one of those things that to me feels like people complain about it being in a fantasy setting like D&D because like oh it's not, you know, I'm trying to recreate this historical period from Earth's history like not realizing that gunpowder is probably older than they think. Very old, uh used kind of like I don't I don't want to say decoratively. Uh <laughs> But uh, but more for for effect than uh, than for a military purpose to start. Yeah, because you know, they, um, wasn't it like uh, somewhere in China that discovered it originally? And because, like the rest of the world, they hadn't figured out rifling. Like they could make like fireworks, and you know, probably tried making bombs and whatnot, but. Well, I would imagine bombs were actually probably like a, a pretty like grenades definitely uh were pretty simplistic. Uh if you bottled any powder, generally speaking, like flour was very explosive if you bottled it too. So, you know, there was a I mean flour is still explosive. Okay, yeah, no, flour never stopped being <laughs> explosive. That's a fair point. <laughs> Although I find it I do find it kind of funny they since we brought up flour that that nobody has ever talked about like oh we're having this this battle in a in a in a windmill and i'm gonna cast fireball it's like well okay well you've blown up the entire windmill now because <laughs> windmills were used to grind flour and so it's just going to be full of flour dust congratulations you've created giant bomb <laughs> that is something that uh, you you definitely have to look out for in a combat situation if you wanted to be a particularly cruel gm <laughs> <laughs> flower bombs i'm just uh adding that to my list here don't you dare not in a game with me <laughs> yeah and i think there's there's plenty of things like uh i share, shared an article with with jesse and he shared it with you of this thing on tumblr of somebody pointing out all of these things that seem like very modern things like eye surgery debt cards huge trade networks uh you know street vendors for food and like all these kind of things that have been around in some form for such a long time that uh you know the the cultures that created them like moved on and kind of forgot that they had done so and then you know white people came along and said hey look at this thing that we made up completely independently of everybody else <laughs> um, like math um, we're really good but, uh, at taking the credit for the thing. Yeah, oh, yeah. no, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and so, like, and I think there's like there's lots of examples of that kind of thing. But I'm what I'm curious about is like, do you have any examples of things that are that feel old but are actually pretty modern? Feel old but are actually pretty modern. Uh, a lot of it actually, like chimneys are a lot younger than you would expect, as are frying pans. Uh, <laughs> On it. Well, I mean, when it when it comes to food, my my impression of everything beyond like I don't know a hundred years ago was that everything was just boiled. You're not not wrong, really, uh, <laughs> except for one crucial thing that you might think is is regularly boiled eggs. They were not big on boiling their eggs; they roasted them. Roasting eggs. Yes, that sounds. They didn't. They didn't more complicated than it needs to be. They didn't get around to the whole boiling boiling the eggs until like I think three hundred and fifty ish years ago. Huh. Yeah. Uh, so they had a habit of exploding because everything at some point in its history had a habit of exploding. <laughs> uh, 
it was it, it's one of those things that uh like the, the culinary arts are weird when you look at them in a middle, medieval context i'm gonna I'm gonna break in here to say as someone who's played in a game with that is easy <laughs> uh, the food is constantly the thing that always surprises us <laughs> because you have so much detail about the food and the setting absolutely and we're like yeah and you have to sometimes explain to us for 20 minutes how a thing was made because we keep asking <laughs> They'll be like, so we're in a field of potatoes? And you're like, no. <laughs> That's the one thing I'm gonna I'm gonna put my foot down on. You know, parsnips maybe, but <laughs> Yeah, because like that's a good point, is that food is something that's you know, there there are things that weren't available or were not available in the quantity that we're used to. Like um I was I've been watching through Castlevania on Netflix and uh in one of the episodes it opens with this like new character because I'm in, it's in season 3 this new character haggling with somebody over the price of an apple and you know he wants to pay just one coin cuz that's what it cost yesterday and they meant the person is saying mentioning that like well they're out of season now like they're going to be they're getting more scarce and so I'm going to be charging more for them and I think a lot of people aren't used to the fact that like up until pretty recently with like refrigeration, things like fruits and vegetables were a very seasonal thing. Like if you wanted an apple, well, you had to wait until fall. Yeah, we are. We've lost kind of a lot of track of like what the season for different foods are. Um because yeah, different different dishes would have been prominent throughout the year. Like if if something's a Christmas dish, it's utilizing a food that would either have kept from harvest in like fall or you know is is still technically growing yeah um although i would disagree that not many people well not many people is true because my my girlfriend is the only person that i know of that like keeps like keeps track in her head of what season it is for the foods because the foods that are in season are cheaper (laughs) that is true they are cheaper and they usually taste better Support your yeah. your yeah. local farmers markets, everyone. <laughs> yes, yeah. nothing is worse than a gala apple that was freeze dried in the middle of the season. They don't actually freeze it. dry them. It's really interesting. They are flash flash frozen. They sorry. pump the the chambers that they keep them in full of gas, so that they're actually in an anaerobic oh. environment. It's really cool. Yeah, it's like a <laughs> was it the, the, the same thing that they do to like preserve old. Uh, manuscripts and stuff they they pump it full of a, like a noble gas that doesn't react with very much yeah Weird. it does actually take a lot of nutrition out of the apples so yeah presumably yeah well it's it's well we're getting a little off, <laughs> off track but like orange, orange juice and all the steps that orange juice goes through to get from the tree to your fridge is like by the time it gets to your fridge it's not really orange juice anymore <laughs> it's mostly like Artificial colorings, artificial flavor, and sugar. Absolutely. Uh, I have definitely heard someone refer to it as zombie juice at that point. Oh, yeah. Like, it's just a zombified version of of the orange juice. (laughs) And so going back to the question i don't think we we got around to this but what what are some things that are more modern than people think they are well i would say as far as something that would impact like a setting drastically our division of space is actually very modern cuz one of the things that you know someone you know they go into an inn 
in a in a game would expect. They you know think okay, typical inn. There's a downstairs with the bar and patrons and whatnot. And then there's an upstairs with like a hallway and individual rooms with uh, beds and things. Yeah, they're pic- picturing the uh, I can't remember the name of it, but the inn that the hobbits go to, like the first stop once they leave Hobbiton, is that that inn where some of them the, get drunk. Yeah. The- the prancing pony? Yeah, I think it's the prancing pony. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's that concept of you know they have a room with a lock on it, and you know, uh, you know, your adventurers will be asked, you know, hey, are you all rooming together? Or are you in separate spaces or what? Not quite true to fashion at the time. Uh, our our division of space is actually pretty Edwardian, so like ni- early nineteen hundreds, really. Um, like if if you okay. go one step back, uh, we had kind of rooms that were all just kind of connected in a line. If you had a house that had, you know, this enough space to really divide properly, and then if you go back from that, it's there's really not very much division of space at all. If you have a have an upstairs, you're probably a noble family, and all your household is is uh, in the area below. So your inn probably has just one large space. Yeah, it's like mostly people sleeping under the tables and beside them. Actually, one thing that they uh, used to do is they actually used to rope people up against the walls so that they would be sleeping sitting. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, your, your sense uh, of comfort and privacy, very different. Just, you know, it would be terribly uncomfortable to go back into that time period and just, you know, realize that everybody's doing their thing in the same space. Yeah. Well, like you look at, at, at houses, like they were, my understanding is that most people, most families lived in a, what amounted to a one room house where, you know, you had the bed in one corner, you had a, a stove or something to cook on in another corner. Like it might just be a, a fire with a hole in the ceiling above it. And you put down some straw and you clean that straw out every once in a while. But for the most part, like everybody's sleeping in the same bed. Everybody just lives inside of this dark, dank, probably kind of smelly. Definitely smelly. Building. Definitely smelly. For- uh, very smoky too. Uh, yes. Chimney's not a thing. Cause um, you know, you, you basically want to conserve the heat and the fuel. Fuel was largely like, you weren't really allowed to like chop down trees for it. You had in most of medieval Europe, you had to actually gather what was deadfall, essentially. So you had a very limited amount of fuel to do all of your your cooking and washing with. So you tended to just have it in the middle, and then you'd string up a bunch of meat in your rafters, salted meat, so that uh, it would utilize that same smoke to cure. So everything was pretty stinky. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing that I think we are incredibly fortunate to have is that uh the the modern world today is a much more fragrant place than it used to be <laughs> i don't know it depends on your use of the word fragrant i guess <laughs> well, i guess it's, it was just a different kind of fragrance uh an unpleasant one oh, absolutely i mean and cities were and, terrible unsanitary and, awful like it, if you could survive in london for a year you were basically cleared of any crime that you had committed at one point because the the death toll was so high because of the sanitary conditions. So. Yeah. And it's, um, it's like you look back at, like you read about science, like before they developed germ theory, you know, the theory of like 
miasmas and there's um you know the air itself is toxic and it's like we think about that now divorced from the context of they lived in a very dirty smelly well they didn't in they they lived dirty smelly lives so thinking that oh it's this smelly air that's making us sick like i get it (laughs) absolutely i mean like uh sanitation like the actual like history of its development is just kind of incredible on it in its own right because you know their cities weren't great at like um mashing together their their resources for disposal they left it kind of up to the independent owners of of places to deal with so all of your garbage had to be carted out of the city somehow and all of your poop too it was it was a thing a lot of people died falling into bad toilets were fined for trying to find unique ways of getting rid of their waste it was very unpleasant <laughs> and these are things that we generally do not put in uh like nobody poops during the the adventure anyway so <laughs> why does it matter but it's one of those things like very apocryphal in dnt just overall i i could see that becoming part of a uh like a mega dungeon crawl where like if you've got a home base you have to start figuring out how to deal with garbage and sanitation well i did have a party uh i think it was the 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 other party i put through an adventure i i put uh jesse through where uh the party suspected the gong farmer the guy who basically is in charge of taking care of the village's night soil of being somehow related to something that was going on in the village so they trailed him all over town (laughs) at one point (laughs) Um, of course of course they know it was it was it was all megan (laughs) so i guess i guess i'm just i'm really curious about whether what other examples you might have uh for this kind of anachronistic stuff because like it's this is the kind of topic that um is something that i could spend a lot of time researching oh my god yes um because one of the things that I'm super curious about is is kind of related to this, which is like, how did people initially figure out things like around cooking? Like, how did somebody figure who was the first person to figure out how to make bread? What was the process from, well, if we put this yeast in this water, then it bubbles to, hey, look, bread. Well, OK, the, the packaged yeast thing wasn't wasn't quite a quite a thing to start. Um, the the first yeasts right. were uh, from you'd basically put your dough outside in a place where there'd be natural yeasts to kind of get at it. It was a little bit of a longer process, uh, and right. fruit peels would also do the trick. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm there's going to be a lot of tangents here. <laughs> well, but that's, that's it's it's a I feel like it's a good one because like that that kind of thing of like yeah like back then they wouldn't have uh, they didn't have packaged yeast they would have just like mixed their dough and then left it outside or put a fruit peel in it if they had fruit Mm -hmm. available and then you know eventually they would have been like well that seems like enough bubbling i'm gonna stick it into my super well temperature controlled oven now (laughs) Um, so i guess like are there are there other food things that you know about that uh that we think of as just like oh yeah when you make x like these are the steps you take but if you went back like a hundred or five hundred or a thousand years, the process would have been very different if it even existed at all to make that particular 
type of food. Well, as uh, as mom said when we were putting her through our campaign, why are we eating so much pottage? Um, a lot of like like we kind of went over a lot of the early um, like foodstuffs was was basically you boiled it for around two hours at a spell um, to basically kill off anything in it before it killed you because they had some very interesting ideas of how to uh, fertilize their fields. But, uh, but yeah, no food actually, like if, if you're kind of tracking like how it moves, it's actually a decent way to actually create a village and, and, and figure out its structures. Um, at least from a medieval standpoint, because things like uh, baking bread were very important and it generally wasn't done in the house after a certain point. Uh, because the technology of the oven itself, like you'd, you'd take your baking, you, you might make a pie or something in your house, but you'd take the baking in a medieval context to a bakehouse for them to do the baking for you because the actual, it sort of conserved the fuel and you didn't have to have everybody with an oven because ovens took a while to heat. So yeah, if everybody just needs to knows that they just need to put it into the oven and, and it sits there until the top of it gets a little brown, then yeah, just have everybody use a single oven. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, churches were very kind of integral in the food chain as well, because they tended to to uh, manage a lot of the farms kind of surrounding them a lot more than you might kind of expect. Is that tied in? Well, I was going to ask if that's tied in with the reason why so many... Um... Uh, I am forgetting, uh, Abbey's made wine, but then I realized like, no, they, they were making wine because they wanted to have good communion wine. They didn't want to drink shit wine. So yeah, no, they, they didn't want, and it wasn't just communion wine. A lot of, a lot of monks, like, um, it's interesting how they would like get around specific rules because, uh, the monks were supposed to have a largely vegetarian diet, but they were allowed to eat meat if they were sick. So the way that kind of eventually resolved itself was they'd just take their food in the infirmary instead where they'd all eat meat. So like. <laughs> sounds like a terrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> Honestly, I can't recommend like getting into like the nitty gritty of like just the day to day stuff of medieval England because it is hilarious all over the place. You see these like, weird like why why did you have to have this middle middle thing why didn't you just say eh, everybody's breaking this rule anyway because <laughs> then you admit that everybody is breaking the rule. that's true and then why do we even have these rules exactly well it's in the book when we can't change the book <laughs> um actually that well i mean this is getting to a more we're kind of getting more into like world building like what if there wasn't a Catholic church? How would that have affected things? But uh, <laughs> Actually, a lot is... in the day-to-day, -day, and not just from a religious standpoint. Oh, uh, yeah. Technologies um, tended to pass through the church. So, Yeah. Um, so we've talked a bit about uh, various things that are ana anachronistic. I bit my tongue trying to say that Anachronistic. That was fantastic. <laughs> um, um, so I guess the thing that people are probably wondering at this point is like, okay, it's all well and good that, uh, you know, people brought all of their baking to a, a central place if their village was large enough or they just maybe went without baking. But like, what does that mean for, for my game? What does that mean at my table? Um, and I think 
like we've kind of been talking a bunch about like mostly villages and like how people live day to day lives. So what are some of the ways that this would potentially impact uh, a game specifically? Because like, I guess I'm more curious about like what happens at the table when the players are involved than what the GM is doing when they're doing world building, because a GM can, can like list all, like go and do a bunch of research on like how people bake stuff and how they, you know, where did they get yeast from? And like, how did they brew their beer? And like all these other things. But if it doesn't happen at the, like if the players never learn about it, then it's, it's cool details. Yeah. The only reason to do it as a DM is if you have a, an absolute love of it, um the the past is a completely foreign place so it's great to sprinkle in like little details and things um but for the most part yeah kind of have to create a bit of a balance with people's expectations or else every couple of minutes you're going to be going well actually uh that's not a thing <laughs> are there are there any things that would make a good plot hook or or hook for an adventure like something that you know you play again you you use the players um like using the players preconceived notions about like oh people cooked in their own homes uh and like how could you use the twist that like no people probably brought it all to like a a single oven that everybody used Hmm. uh as some kind of a a plot hook somehow i'm not sure if it necessarily makes the best plot hook because uh, plot hooks tend to work on people's expectations more than anything. Uh, Very so true. Sub- That's a good so point. subverting them tends to to have its own fun. But uh, but for the most part, I think that you don't tend to make the best plot hooks that way. Like it's it, you can definitely kind of like create a setting um, that's particularly very small and uh, and intimate that the players kind of get to know the intricacies of it um like they'll pick up on an interesting detail they'll learn like the baker uh actually has a lot of power in this particular village because you know they have a lot more technical know-how and everybody's kind of interfacing with them so maybe they're a busybody and they know a lot of things that and they're in everybody's business so if you have kind of a a situation where you need to get to know a village fast maybe talk to your local baker Right. So like, yeah, the, the, the innkeeper is the person who knows what's going on outside of town. The baker knows what's going on inside of town. Absolutely. And the brewer is everybody's best friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that, that brings another thing up too, right? Like for a long time, water wasn't super safe to drink. Right? Absolutely not. Uh, alcohol was the, the major solve for that. Uh, people didn't tend to drink it at the same concentrations we do. They tended to water it, was- it down quite a bit. So, yeah, that's why you'd have a big mug and you put a little bit of beer in it or whatever liquor you've got available. And then you fill the rest with water so that, you know, after a few minutes, that water is safer to drink. It's one of the things like our our modern society is a lot more sober than than any of the the sort of eras that came before. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like there's um, it's interesting because I did a little bit of researched on this because of something that I heard on another podcast. But um, like my understanding was that um, people didn't really get drunk the same way that we do today. Like um, the notion of uh, somebody being like a drunkard or something like that was pretty rare. Like people like 
life was hard enough that people didn't make it harder by being drunk all the time. Basically, because, you know, if you get sick, you're kind of losing a lot of your calories and whatnot. If you vomit, you know, you're um, potentially opening yourself up to to other illnesses and things like that. Um, The world was dangerous. You know, uh, areas that you might not expect tended to kill a lot of people. Um, Like water was exceedingly dangerous in period. Due to people's wool clothing, a lot of people tended to drown more often. So if you wandered off drunk and you fell off of a bridge, you probably were going to die. So yeah, no, uh, dangers of the medieval period that you might not expect, I guess. Water, I, I, very I, dangerous. People did not know how to swim. <laughs> I just I just realized that th- that that combination of facts makes life even more depressing because <laughs> life sucks. You can't get drunk to to try and ignore how shitty the world is. <laughs> you can, you can, you can, but you, but if you do, there's a good chance you're gonna die. <laughs> and then something like swimming might necessarily be a leisure thing if you're wealthy, or a survival thing if you live on a coast and that's how you get your stuff. But like otherwise, probably a lot of people didn't know how to swim, right? No, not very many people did. It uh, like you might go and bathe at a river, which was not considered the healthiest thing to do depending on on where you were because rivers also tended to carry away uh, a lot of other things from um uh sort of inhabited areas but you know people people did bathe that was a thing that they did but it wasn't considered like terribly hygienic in an interesting way <laughs> um but yeah no uh, because people tended to to wear so much wool and wool picks up a lot of water um, they, you had tons of people who died from not just like falling in wells, but just, you know, accidentally ending up in like small creeks and things. If you go down lists of what killed people, it was largely teeth and water. So. <laughs> teeth. <yeah>. Bad teeth. <laughs> Bad teeth were a thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's like the invention of the toothbrush, like prolonged human lives by a lot. Oh, it had some it had some trial and error too because initially like people were using a lot of very abrasive stuff on their teeth so it basically just wore them away faster oh, <laughs> everything had a weird trial period if you can do a setting in any part of history and there's something that is going to be way more dangerous than it is in a modern setting i feel like we're still in that period with the internet with the internet <laughs> yes but for things like <laughs> stairs, we're we're doing we're doing great. <laughs> I mean, as as long as you know what you're doing, stairs are a solved problem. They are kind of a solved problem, yeah. Like, um, they were a major killer back in the day because people tended to make them at different heights. They they weren't uniform, which caused people to trip when they weren't paying attention. So. That and they were narrow and windy and people were tended to carry more things that were heavy up them. So, yeah, everything was more dangerous. That's This is the main thing, like dexterity checks. If you want to like have some dexterity checks every time someone uh, goes up or down some stairs, <laughs> wouldn't object. <laughs> that, well, that's something I'm, I'm curious about is like I can see stairs in like because you said earlier that like if you had two floors, you were probably a noble. But like, you know. Most stairs that people would encounter were probably uneven like that, but were uh, stairs in castles, did they face a similar problem? Because like if, if they're hewn out of stone, I could see that being potentially 
somebody paying more attention to making sure the dimensions are all correct. That's the thing is we didn't actually kind of come to the conclusion of to what was the optimal rise and go of a stair uh, for quite a while. Um, And stone stairs like were terrible, like forget wood stairs. Uh, Stone stairs had the added problems of being kind of knobbly. They chipped. They, if you used them too much, they became polished and slick. If you didn't, they got, little worn places in them and you might just trip because it has a weird indentation um so they got it probably got pretty slick if it was uh, if you're in a wet area oh yeah and absolutely like they would be uh if you i had a opportunity at one point to actually go uh up one of the uh the pyramid structures in uh in mexico and when you get to the top where everyone is actually like using the same stairs because it, it kind of narrows like i i nearly slipped and and like tumbled the length of the pyramid pyramid i was like oh this is why they're closing it down to everybody after like this year <laughs> it's uh they weren't wet they were perfectly dry but they were just worn smooth and slick yeah i had a i had a similar experience and those are also incredibly steep stairs absolutely <laughs> it's easier to go up than down too yeah, I'm just remembering like when I was visiting Switzerland and walking up some like steep steps in Zurich or maybe Basel, and like, yeah, they were they were tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So when it comes to doing any world building or like prepping for for sessions, um, what are some ways that GMs can use e- either like try to hew more closely to what might be like quote unquote period accurate or what are things that they can like ways that they can potentially use things that would be anachronistic but like still fit within whatever time period they're aiming for um people to like i i find that it works best to kind of treat it like a period drama uh a lot of things your audience isn't going to necessarily care about as much as you do so it's always right. about striking that balance. Uh, having a couple of things, like if you if you really want to get into the nitty gritties, expect to spend a lot of time uh, educating your audience. That can be fun, but in small doses. <laughs> right. So, you know, pick your battles, find the thing that entertains you, like, you know, um, add in a dog-powered roasting spit into your into your inn or uh have a have a thing where you're the oxen that are pulling your your cart uh have a one syllable name on one side and a two syllable name on the other side it'll it'll scratch that itch for you but it won't put your players off (laughs) right and if your player's listening to this and your gm likes to put in historical stuff ask them about it (laughs) Absolutely. It's a lot of fun. I, I I tended to put in, I think, a lot more than uh <laughs> than I went out and said. But uh but yeah, I'd add weird things into your guys' loot, like cones of sugar, um, because sugar was very valuable, but it didn't tend to be like transported as a powder. Yeah. I mean, hell, my favorite kind of sugar still is mostly made in a cone. <laughs> Do you do you have like a little metal thing to like scrape it with into your like coffee or something? No, I don't use it for coffee unless I'm making cafe de olla. Ah. Um, but it's like a Mexican sh- sugar. I just cut a piece off. 
Are are there any technologies or anachronisms that you would suggest that people just stay away from that they don't try to that they don't try to play with as a thing for their setting? Uh, you mean like sort of um, some anachronistic stuff that like they just shouldn't touch, kind of like yeah. Uh... Yeah, for 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 whatever reason, either because like the history of this thing is you know kind of mean and nasty, or it's just it's you know maybe it's a thing that you shouldn't play around with because it could potentially you know maybe it's tied into somebody's religion and messing around with that in a game might not be super great. Absolutely, uh, sensitivities are a thing because a lot of our history is very nasty. And uh, there's a lot of things that have impacted people particularly. So, you know, take a look around your table and make sure that uh, that if you're playing with something uh, that you're trying to handle it respectfully, if anything, and maybe just don't. Um, like uh, sugar production and slavery has... Like it's it's brutal, it's nasty. Like in a what would I make it as maybe an element, an off element in a game in a fantasy setting where it's very removed? Maybe um, I, I I did it as uh, very obliquely as like villainous stuff that was happening in the background, and uh, it was probably the major cue that the uh, the person who was inheriting, trying to inherit the, the estate, was a nasty person. Uh, but I wouldn't have centered a campaign around it because it's, it's very, very easy. Like there's so much within the context of D and D that borrows from things like racial stereotypes, misogyny, patriarchy, the whole nastiness that, um, that it's already in there. So like accentuating and digging into, to things that kind of support that maybe, maybe not sometimes. Unless it is something like I, th- I think the only exception is your players have all come to, to come to you, yeah. um, and you're comfortable doing it because I think that's one of the things that we we've mentioned a couple times when you know treading around topics that are potentially uh, very tricky to handle is that if your players come to you, but I think we we the the flip side of that is if you're also comfortable with doing it, absolutely, yeah, well because. Yeah, I was just gonna say that like there are things that I am curious about, but even if an entire table of players came to me and said, use this thing in your game, I would still say no, because I don't think I could handle certain topics properly. Absolutely. Like, um, for a lot of people, this history is not escapism. It's it's shaped our world in very, very nasty ways that we're still still dealing with the fallout of. So um handling that respectfully in a in a game it's it's a it's a tough balance so you know it's great to to be aware and to dig into though yeah because it can help change your perceptions about you know uh various things in history like going back to like the article that i shared like the fact that circular saws debit cards and eye surgery were around in ancient egypt like that changes how you think about the things that they were able to accomplish. And um, in, I guess in particular, one of the things that uh, I have an interest in is like the idea of uh, Western civilizations being jealous of places with long oral histories, Mm. um, which is uh, like 
this is a very simplistic way of putting it, but Victorian people being jealous of places like Australia with oral histories that go back so far that they reference places that have been underwater for over 20,000 years um, got the Victorians so jealous that that's part of the reason why Atlantis became so huge was that Atlantis was a super advanced civilization of white people who taught the rest of the world about pyramids and stuff. Oh, there's so much weird stuff. Like, yeah, um, the Victorians shaped our view of the medieval period so much. Like a lot of the actual anachronistic stuff that we're used to came from Victorian romances uh, of like the medieval times. So our what our fantasy setting is, is their recolor, in essence, of that time. And the Victorians had a lot of hang-ups about things. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. <laughs> so, yeah. So a lot of that kind of, uh, you know, uh, chivalry being a massive thing, like uh, like a code of honor, is like, no, knights were brutes. Um we part of the reason why they uh, had so many crusades was because they kind of had too many of them and they were terrors um the the code of chivalry was more or less to try and rein them in a little bit and legitimize them enough that you kind of could give them a sense of shame but yeah they were they were nasty murderers that they yeah no <laughs> it's i don't know what the like complete opposite opposite to comfort is like it's not discomfort but it's something worse but to know that terrible people have kind of always been immune to shame <laughs> they kind yeah, of always have a, been a yeah modern term. oh absolutely yeah. um but i guess that that is one of the thing though is that are there when it comes to anachronisms we're we're so used to talking about um technology we're used to talking about like like we've been talking about this entire episode so far is you know how did they bake how did they clean themselves you know like mostly technology and the uh taboos and mores around that technology but are there like purely social things that are anachronistic that uh absolutely uh you can't get into D&D terribly much without hitting them right away because um, travel. Travel is very anachronistic in D&D. Um, just from moving between settings uh, and places so much. Uh, a lot of D&D campaigns, you're on this perpetual road trip and people didn't travel that much really. They, they might have a few uh, pilgrimages during their lifetime to somewhere for some reason but you were very restricted in what time of year, your methods, like um, you wouldn't want to go too early in spring necessarily because nobody has any food for you to eat that's spare. So if you don't have the food to get you where you're going, you're going to starve. Um, and then the roads are going to be very muddy. So summer is great for travel and early fall, but eventually it starts becoming more miserable um, when you don't have a lot of resources to spare or the roads become muddy and impassable. Uh, you're, the animals you tend to use wouldn't normally be horses because they're very delicate. They're kind of like the, uh, the I don't know, expensive car of their time. 
they uh, had hard, yeah. high maintenance. They're high maintenance creatures. You'd probably be using like oxen or goat carts or just hoofing it yourself. Yeah, and so like something that um, uh, my dad told me this this weekend when he was here for Thanksgiving was that uh, like this is a more modern example, but it's a good example of how delicate horses are. Was that uh, when the RCMP was founded, uh, one of the things that one of the very first things that they did was they were sent out west to put down a rebellion. And at this time, like the RCMP was, uh, you know, a whole bunch of, of guys who had been like basically put through a boot camp, stuck on their horses and sent out West. And they, these are people that had like never ridden a horse in their lives. Like the most, what they knew about it was I ride it and it eats grass. <laughs> um, but it turns out that the, uh, the thoroughbreds, the very, uh, hard to control thoroughbreds that the RCMP used um, couldn't eat prairie grass. Yep. They couldn't, they couldn't digest it. So you have this like whole regiment of RCMP who have arrived out in, in the prairies that are full of grass and all of these things that they, you would think that a horse could eat, but nope. Horses have pretty particular diets. It turns out. They do. They can eat grass. They can graze. It's just, the ones that have been uh, with human beings tend to be really, uh, well, they don't, I think they like grass about as much as we do at this point. Yeah, because they've been, they've been bred to be like stronger, to have more endurance. And like, because of the way that we've bred them, like their diets have changed so that they can, they get the energy they need to, you know, be able to carry a knight in armor, for example. Well, absolutely. Um, because I think that's, this kind of ties in, but it's it's something that we don't think about is just how much of a war was really won by the people who cared about the logistics of the war, the people who made sure that the army was fed, that they, you know, got all their weapons repaired, that they had the materials to do those repairs. Yeah, it was uh, the logistics of it is just it's incredible to kind of get into the nitty gritty of it, because like actually transporting people, you need to make sure that they have things to drink and eat and you know you can you can solve some of your some of your transport issue by strapping things onto the things that you intend to eat and having the things you intend to eat walk it for you but um <laughs> when, when everything when when the goat doesn't have anything else left to put on it then the next night you kill it and yeah it. basically yes um but yeah like war was something that you would did during times when you could kind of expect the landscape to help you out with it. Um, the When everything was like dry enough to, to travel and things were still growing that you could forage. Um, yeah, it was just sort of a, a, a time when people didn't move around. Like, yeah. Like what, what is it? It's like most people were born, lived and died within uh, like a, a 10 mile radius circle. Like they didn't, travel like you're saying um but at the same time like people knew that there were places out there that they could travel to it's just for most people it wasn't a thing so i guess something i'm curious about with travel is how would that impact uh like the party showing up at some remote village well they'd probably be treated with uh either curiosity or distrust um if you were traveling like there were legitimate reasons to do it, but a lot of the times uh, people were traveling to get away from something. So people tended to be a little leery of traveling folk. Um, 
right? Because they're they're here to to steal our farmland. They're here to, you know, take that mine from us. They're here for the resources that we've been using for a while now. And or they're an outlaw and they're trying to outrun their reputation. Which is, in the case of a bunch of adventurers, they're also bristling with weapons. Yes, that's that's (laughs) another thing to be very concerned of. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I think one of my, going back to the like outlaw outrunning their, their reputation is that like that, like there's a reason why up until somewhat recently, like scammers could live their entire lives just on the road. They just had to like move to the next town when too many people start getting suspicious of your Ponzi scheme. Like you could just keep moving on and keep moving on. Um, there's so many stories of, of uh, scammers and con artists who like, even among people that talked like, you know, people who there's con artists who would go from like royal court to royal court um, and eventually they would run out of royal courts. But yeah, yeah like and they, they settle down and become the ma- one of the first mayors of Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, like, yeah, that's a fact. Like if, if your party of adventurers really screws the pooch and those owl bears have wiped out the town, well, Next town over doesn't know it's your fault. <laughs> it's true. Uh, news doesn't always travel very fast. Um, definitely a thing. Like um, a lot of the inroads and outroads of of villages, like places where you'd expect kind of people coming in and out, uh, would actually be the churches because uh, people would go on pilgrimages. It's one of the more uh, legitimate ways to to travel, and so they'd be. Uh, They'd be expecting visitors there, more or less. Right. Yeah. But hey, actually, this is a thing that could inform a plot hook. It's actually very realistic for a town to just be gone. Oh, yeah. And no one to know about it until you come across it. Oh, heck. Because there's, people don't travel them. There's some stuff out there that are just like, it's real spooky. Because uh, one, one thing particularly that would happen every now and again uh is a bad year in rye you'd end up with a uh, a fungal infection called ergot of rye people would go absolutely mad and poisoned by their bread so they'd just disappear off the map (laughs) it's um it's one of the uh theories about the movie the witch is that they're all suffering from ergo poisoning because of the corn yeah because one of the shots early in the mo- in the movie, um, and the, the the father mentions it like one or two other times, like our crops aren't doing well. But the one time that he actually is like holding a piece of corn and you get a good look at it, people have said that like, oh, that's that's ergo, like that's mold, like they're getting poisoned by their food. Yeah, and that's why they all just that's why the plot of the movie happens. Absolutely. <laughs> and I guess that's something is is it like. Does it make sense to have a a town where everybody seems to be a little bit off and they keep talking about all these strange happenings and it just turns out that you know their food's gone bad? <laughs> like how how would how would you use something like that in a an adventure in a campaign? I think it it lends itself more to a low low magic campaign setting because a lot of like particularly like D and D five E, actually any D and D game uh, has a lot of like magical problem solving built in. Like y- the magic in D and D would alter a society a lot. Uh, more to like like I kind of almost look at D and D five E as like 
an alternate universe modern day setting where they just utilized magic as the crutch they needed and just kind of lived with the the rest. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of stopped. It just kind of stopped. They were like, eh, "We're fine. We can we can heat our water by magic. Who cares anymore?" Yeah, when but your I priest mean... when your priest can probably cure most of the diseases a small village would see in their life, like why do you need to worry about, you know, washing your hands? Absolutely. But I mean, like, if you detected poison on, on like, rye fields or whatever, you'd probably pick up the uh, the contaminants at that point. <laughs> the, yeah. the, par- the party is chasing a, a monster through a field and one of them casts detect poison. You're surrounded by poison. <laughs> Everything is poison. Hey, all of a sudden, it makes sense with that the cleric should always keep a, you know... <laughs> Uh, what is it? Purify food and water. <laughs> Just like, oh, yeah, no. You know how the wizard casts mage armor every day? I cast purify food and drink every day. Okay, so <laughs> crazy, crazy story. I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but like uh, adding in specific details, uh, people will have weird reactions to them. And one thing that I've noted is lice and fleas. <laughs> People don't care that they are imag- imaginary. They don't want their character to have them. <laughs> and they will drive themselves mad if you try and force like force the issue and you're not like, ah, you can press the digitation them away. It's like, now nah, you have to figure out a way to get rid of the fleas. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll spend a good two hours at it. I I do love that. Like I think I maybe played the most appropriate character for one of your games to get license, please. Never came up, but though. it never happened. No, I learned that lesson ahead. <laughs> I mean, Nal would have been like talking to them. He'd be like, "I oh, look at my cool flea and lice friends that I get to talk to all the time." <laughs> you will drive yourself yeah, mad I trying could... to get rid of them. <laughs> I could see somebody leaning into it. Welcome to Itchtown. <laughs> Population, me. Um, <laughs> um, so are there are there any other, is there anything else that you'd like to talk to about uh, technology and anachronistic things in different time periods and how that relates to, to tabletop games? Is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you'd like to... To talk about? No, like it's one of those things. Like, there's a lot of rabbit holes there. Um, like weaponry is really interesting, but for the most part, like D and D kind of covers that with its its system. Uh, it's got its own anachronistic nature built in because everyone is stopping and moving every like six seconds. So it's like a weird like only one person can ever spend six seconds at a time. You know. <laughs> doing their own thing uh so i'm not sure if it's even worthwhile to get into but uh but yeah no um i i guess this is more or less just a thought experiment of like yeah when someone starts getting on your case about uh oh that it that's not something that was in medieval medieval period well a lot of your D game is not true to your uh your things so you know ease up their tiger yeah i think my 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 closing thought on on that is that yeah there's there's so much in D&D that like if you're trying to play a realistic game then you shouldn't be using D&D <laughs> as the system um because yeah like between the the magic and 
like stuff like like the alchemist fire and all of the magic items that you have you potentially have access to um like even in a low magic setting there's like like you said the fact of magic being a thing would have changed how history played out so drastically that yeah if somebody wants to have a wheelchair in their game or whatever it is just let them well if they think it's going to be more fun let them. that's kind of an interesting thing um our kind of modern concept of like i don't know ableism is actually a lot different because uh a lot of the way people kind of handle like uh mental disorders or physical disorders like they just kind of accepted them as like a part of life so you'll see people who uh, like the actual evidence of them was like, yeah, no, they were a valued member of the household. They just had one leg their entire life, given what we can tell about their skeleton or like an arm that was fused in an upright like L, you know, uh, people just kind of got on with their limitations. And we didn't really have a concept of normal until like the 1700s even yeah because there are um digs that have shown like even as far back as like proto-humans that we've been taking care of each other like there are like um digs where they found bones where somebody was missing an arm or missing a leg or their arm had been broken in such a way that it would have been useless but the break like because what we what we know about how bones heal like they broke that happened to them when they were a kid and they died an old person like taken care of by their community so that's just it like it's yeah. it's not a never as grim dark as it always seems to to be when they try and you know put it in a movie or what have you like it's um people people had sentiment they they cared about each other um you know we had a lot of acceptance for for people's differences to a point like we weren't accepting of everything throughout history there's definitely dark things um but there's a lot of weird acceptances and you know contradictions and yeah there was nasty brutal stuff that people did to each other but not all the time <laughs> it was uh it, it was kind of um both nastier and kind of more heartwarming than you might expect yeah and people were smarter than you think too. Like um, I've read some things that the idea that um, medieval peasants were illiterate and lived in like mud huts was mostly a tax avoidance scheme. <laughs> Actually uh, the mud huts are a thing. Uh, Waddle and daub was a technology for using uh, or building huts cheaply and effectively. Um so the mud, but they were still nicer than what you think of when you think of mud yeah, huts. Yeah, they're nicer than what you'd expect because they're they're kind of like uh, like a earlier form of stucco, kind of. Um, yeah. But uh, the interesting thing about peasant the peasantry, uh, at least in England, uh, they were a lot more literate than you might expect. But they didn't use it to like read books or create novels or or what have you. Uh, the main reason they they tended to read was to communicate with other villages and also because they were exceedingly litigious. <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, the, the rules, uh, like, there, there was a lot of interplay between, like, uh, peasantry and nobility. And the peasantry did have some protections, uh, so they learned how to play the game, in essence. They had, uh, you know... The, the way they handled justice and what have you was 
you know, very different. They they tended to to have councils where they'd hand out um, fines. A lot of it was just fines. <laughs> Prison wasn't really a thing, but they could fine you into oblivion. Uh, they had things like uh, victim compensation. So if you knocked out somebody's teeth, depending on what tooth it is, you'd get like a shilling, like a different shilling amount per tooth because, you know, you had deprived someone of something that was like, you know, now Damn. gone. <laughs> they can't <laughs> yeah. use that tooth for the rest of their life. So, so yeah, like um, that was, that was one major thing about that time period. Like, you don't normally see as a as a thing in a lot of campaigns. People kind of expect peasants to be kind of the dumb, bumbling, disconnected, powerless NPCs. You don't necessarily think of them as being like, you know, learning the law to their advantage. Or depending on what time period you're aiming for, playing the stock market. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that was that was a big thing. <laughs> I think one of my like favorite, not favorite. But one of the my the things that always uh, frustrates me is like the fact that there's a very particular group of people that paint Vikings a very specific kind of yep. way <laughs> that is very wrong. Yes, um, it's interesting to see just how like like people's view like again it's got a lot of that Victorian kind of kind of tinges to it, particularly in the way they kind of believe like women were but like okay. To shatter an illusion here, uh, Viking burials, you don't tend to set a boat on fire and put it out into the bay. Um, you tend to have charred bodies, like, wash up on the shore if you do that. So, yeah, they burnt boats, but they burnt them on land. <laughs> <laughs> or the fact that, like, women control the finances and yeah, stuff Yeah, like uh, the keys of the home were given to the woman of the house uh, because sh uh, she held the assets the actual uh like the the ownership of the the land and house belonged to her so or the fact that they were just as likely to you know have a rap battle instead of punch and kick each other rap battles are surprisingly old <laughs> i'm not even kidding uh like i mean i can i i totally get that though because um like so many cultures that had a completely oral history, like being able to tell a story, being able to rhyme, being able to like do that kind of thing would have been uh, a talent that people would have wanted to develop. And so like, yeah, like someone who's good at telling stories and knows all of these epics would probably have some pretty good burns. Oh yeah. Um, well, okay. It does depend on what time period again. Cause like um, <laughs> just, how songs in fiction like like what they focused on what our conceptions of like for instance bards were always very disreputable <laughs> anyone anyone who made their living doing anything musical were just kind of considered you know something had gone wrong and in, in they're bringing up some point but um yeah it was very interesting because like the the major like songs in poetry of like around like 1200 was like very buddy bro culture in a weird way. Like uh, the Epic of Roland, uh, the, the closest thing to a romance is that is a guy basically pledging his love to his sword. So, <laughs> so like courtly love and uh, you know, people actually singing about like a wider range of human emotion. 
it was a little bit later, <laughs> like sort of the the middle of the, the Middle Ages. Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to telling stories, the unreliable narrators have been a thing for as long as we've been telling stories because um, the uh, Beowulf, uh, like it's what, what we know of as Beowulf is uh, comes from, it was like a, a monk or a Christian scholar of some kind who learned the tale and wrote it down. And so like the, the, the tale of Beowulf is, has this, um, viewpoint that we don't think about and it's probably the same for like any bard in your game who's traveling around telling stories and the the players hear about you know this ancient treasure or you know a warlord attacking like they're going to be twisting the words in some way shape or form absolutely well it it's really the case that the christians were the ones who really started writing down what was uh that that the point before like only an oral tradition like you look at like uh, all that we know of norse mythology comes through a christian lens uh so is it's from like two different poems oh, yeah. or something yep it's it's basically two two different books and both were written essentially after uh christianity had basically already kind of uh, flattened, Change their culture. flattened the landscape as far as those those stories were. So there's so many things that are mentioned in those texts, like gods that we have very little idea as to what their stories were, because we've got like a, I mean, a it's like we have like a ten percent if if that. Uh, really quickly on the the Vikings before I think we should probably start wrapping up is that uh, as a kid in elementary school, one of my favorite books to take out from the library was a book of Norse mythology. Um, But I always found it weird, even as a kid going to a Catholic elementary school, that the story of Ragnarok ended with basically like, oh, hey, all you Norse people, here's Adam and Eve. Yep. Welcome to Christianity. Like, are you trying to sneak your Christianity into my Norse mythology? Oh, shake my fist at thee. <laughs> but they did the same with the uh, the Celts and, and Gaelic kind of traditions and what like there was a lot of um, a lot of gods and other sort of traditions, which they had to kind of crush into a sort of Christian lens because to to write about it in in the context that it would have been given would have been just blasphemy. We can't write this down as they just told it to us. That doesn't, you know, fit in with our view of the world. Well, it's like you have to kind of put it in like the, uh, well, this is what they believe kind of thing. But like, you know, a lot of the framing devices kind of kind of turned a lot of things that were supposed to be like they had their own concepts attached to them as to like what a god was um, into something very different that fit a more Christian lens. Um, it's just something that just, just came to mind is like, what if you took one of the religions that's like in the D and D books and you decided that, well, this is actually like an amalgamation of a bunch of different religions and they're not too happy about this new upstart. Well, that's kind of the interesting thing. Uh, polytheism actually uh, the way it kind of works uh, like in D and D, we kind of expect that someone is like devoted to like a specific god a lot of the time, and that's not really what you do in a polytheistic culture. But um, like, I, oh, it's just a tangent in itself, really. Like, 
Yeah, you, you worship whatever god you need in the moment for whatever you're doing. Basically, yes. Uh, and I think it's it's part of why uh, a lot of our kind of modern sensibilities are kind of all warped, is we have all of these sort of like dead traditions that we're kind of used to playing with, like the Norse gods and whatnot. No one really cares if we reference them because there's no one like who would take offense to them being out of context really yeah like there are but not not as like a, a wider culture kind of thing so we're kind of used to to playing with these like dead safe gods and then from like a european tradition we don't quite understand when we're told from like you know hindu which is still an active and alive culture and religion don't use these don't disrespect them it's like that we're, we've already been primed to play with dead things so yeah and there's a whole other conversation that we could probably have around how uh the west specifically has fallen into this this i don't know bad habit of viewing everything through a the lens of christianity even when somebody isn't religious because it's just it's such a huge part of our culture and our society that you kind of can't escape it unless you try really hard. Absolutely. I mean, you look at what people think like a God is and like different cultures handle it differently. So like you might expect like a God to be like omniscient or uh, omnipotent or at least like very greatly like a big powerhouse, but that's not how they always seem to be written. Like uh, a lot mm -hmm. of them seem like they're actually kind of more like, marvel superheroes so what actually constitutes a god has been warped by our view of, of like not just christianity but like the entire sort of surrounding canon because it's all a big mess <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think i mean that's probably a really good place to end it is that like the world is messy so don't worry too much if your world starts to get messy too. Absolutely. Go out, play with the history. If you want to do something weird, go for it. Like if you want to to shake up people's like conceptions of what's normal, do it. Um, huh. you know, uh mix, match, play with it, like add the the apocryphal and the anachronistic and just go and have a good time. <laughs> Yeah. Have a good time. <laughs> Introduce the things you want to. Ignore the things you don't. It's ultimately your world anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, you said before we started that you don't think you have anything to plug right now, but is there anywhere online that uh, if people wanted to, they could find you? That's a hard question because I make myself <laughs> hard to find. I have a Twitter account I haven't used in like five years. Uh <laughs> I mean, you have uh, an interview with Roarcat Reads. That's true. I do have an interview with Roarcat Reads. Uh, I did something with them not too terribly long ago. And uh, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe get Google Izzy Bromberger in like, you know, I don't know, four months time. Maybe I'll have something interesting. Cool. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, this has been a blast. I always love these kind of topics because I just have so many questions. <laughs> Well, I'm willing to, to keep going. <laughs> uh, no, we should probably wrap up because I need to go and do other things. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Blast. And talk to you next time. Yeah. Roll for initiative. <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, and thanks everyone for listening. <laughs> How do you sign off now? <laughs> we are uh, still working that out. Still? We just basically go, bye, and bye. then we record an outro later. Okay. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> thanks again for listening to our show. We are proud members of the Cave Goblin Podcast Network. Find us and other shows at cavegoblins.com. You can support us and our network by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cavegoblins or by joining our Discord. You can also support us by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver. You can find me at Jesse Boros and you can find Sean at Sean P. Hagen. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. See more of her work at HaleyBoros.com. That is it for this episode. Hope to see you out there at the gaming table. show on the cave goblin network exclusive to patreon backers of just one dollar or more each series lasts for a maximum of 12 episodes then switches hosts and premises series two is tabletop tales hosted by me jesse boros where i interview people about memorable stories from their tabletop gaming sessions hear the adventures at patreon.com slash cave goblins hey there lovely listeners I'm Talia Murdoch, and I'm here to tell you about my show, Everything Economics. Every week, I talk about the world around you, specific social and economic issues, and dive into how fantasy realms would work in real life. That's Everything Economics on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.